If you've got your copy of God's Word this morning, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 12. Uh, Exodus chapter 12. We've been walking through the book of Exodus for the last handful of months, and we are uh, the plan, Lord willing, is to continue uh, that journey to remind ourselves of the greatest act of salvation that ever happened before the finished work of Jesus Christ. Um, So Exodus chapter 12, today we're going to pick up in verse 40 and finish reading chapter 12 and then read chapter 13 uh, down through the end of that chapter. So let's let's look at, at this text, Exodus 12 verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it. After you have circumcised him, no foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land." But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, by their host. Chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first... To open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory." You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as He swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem." 
And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I shall redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Let's pray together. Father God, so often when we look at the Old Testament, and in particular the details of laws and rituals that no longer directly apply to us today, we we read these things and think, come on God, give us something different. And yet we know, Lord, that your word, your Old and New Testaments are inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproof, and correction, and training in righteousness. We know that even these texts about Passover rituals, and Feast of Unleavened Bread, and consecration of firstborns, Lord, are inspired by You, and are meant to make us more like You, are meant to make us depend on You, and know You and Your heart more. So I pray, Lord, this morning, in our short time together, that You will open our eyes to see how these things apply even into our lives today. We pray, Lord, that Your Spirit will take Your truth and apply it to our hearts so that we become more like Your Son, Jesus, our Savior and Sanctifier. We praise You this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Last week we looked at part of this text that I just read, but we didn't finish it. We explained last week that when Israel's bondage is finally broken, that their response, at least in the, in the short term, is that God shows them favor because they did what God asked them to do. They went and asked the Egyptians to provide for them before they left, and they did that. We saw that God's character was put on display as one who has a heart even for the nations. And as a result of that, we too should live on mission. But we didn't finish the chapter. And and this week we look to finish it and also try to make sense of some of these feasts. In the past weeks, we have seen God's concern that Israel never forget their salvation. And that's the first truth, I think, that we can take out of this passage and apply very specifically into our lives today. 
It's this. When, you, when your bondage is broken, you work hard to remember your redemption. You work hard to remember your redemption. God wants Israel to never forget what He has done for them. He wants them to always identify themselves in this way. We are the people whose bondage was broken by hiding under the shed blood of the Lamb. Which, by the way, is the exact same way He wants New Covenant believers to identify ourselves. So God, to help them remember these things forever and ever, He works into their calendar these rituals that will happen each year. He gives them the Passover and He gives them the Feast of Unleavened Bread where they will reenact this great act of salvation each year in the first month of their calendar year. They will spend a week each year remembering their salvation. But then in Exodus chapter 13, God also calls them to another ritual. He calls them to consecrate their firstborn sons. Which, if we're honest, if I'm honest, when I usually read through Exodus, I kind of skim this part. Because I don't really understand how it applies to us today. To me, in particular, as a believer trying to live for the Lord Jesus. But this week, as I read and studied this, it was as if God had opened my eyes to something that I never had really made sense of. If you think about the book of Exodus... Really, the whole book is a story about sons. In the ancient world, sons represented your family's future, their welfare. They were your life insurance plan. They were your protection and security. That's why the book of Exodus opens with Pharaoh doing what? Trying to kill the Hebrew boys. These future men were a future threat to his kingdom and his power. So his attempt in Exodus 1 is to destroy them while they are still weak and vulnerable before they become a threat and a rival to his kingdom. If you remember back in Exodus 4 verse 22, when God initially told Moses that he was going to call him to go confront Pharaoh, God said this. He said, I'm going to go judge Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Why? Because Israel is my firstborn son. If Pharaoh refuses to let my son Israel go, then I will kill his firstborn son. That's what God told Moses was the reason he was going to send him to Pharaoh. We know the story. We've looked at the confrontations and the plagues and the Passover. Pharaoh refuses to obey God and eventually God makes good on that promise. And here in Exodus 13, now that Israel's bondage is broken, Israel is told that since they are God's firstborn son collectively, and since all of their firstborn sons were saved from the judgment of God by the blood of the Lamb painted on the door, God says because of these things, each of your families must consecrate their firstborn sons to me. They must set them apart and dedicate them to me. As their Savior and their God, God is claiming here His rights to their offspring. He's reminding them that all that they have, even their firstborn sons, which represent their future and their insurance and their protection, even those firstborn sons are rightfully His as their God and Savior. So he says, of the clean... This isn't just for children, it's also for animals. Of their clean 
eatable animals, the ceremonially clean animals, they are to give the firstborn of these animals as an offering to God. They're to slay it and, and, and burn it as an act of worship to God. But then there are other animals that are not ceremonially clean. Work animals, like donkeys in particular, are listed here. So they can't sacrifice as an offering of worship to God an unclean animal. That would be inappropriate. But the firstborn donkey is still God's. And therefore, they have to somehow give it to Him. And there's two options. They can either kill it because it couldn't be used for any other purpose because it's God's, or they could do something different. They could redeem it so that the donkey could still be theirs and they could still use it. And they could redeem it by doing what? By offering a lamb's blood in its place. We sing songs about being redeemed all the time. We hear in Bible lessons and sermons this word redemption all the time, but a lot of times we just equate it with salvation and we don't really know the specific meaning of this word. The idea of being redeemed, though, means you're buying something back at a price. You're buying something back at a price. So this is all fine with animals, right? The donkey of the, the firstborn donkey doesn't have to die because we're going to have a sacrificial lamb die in its place so we can still use it. That's fine for most people when we talk about animals. But when you start talking about this kind of language with human children, it kind of gets weird, right? It should. If it doesn't get a little weird with you, then check your pulse, right? There should be something a little bit strange about this idea for us. We see in the Old Testament that some, like Hannah in 1 Samuel, and eventually the tribes of Levi, who are the tribe of priests, they would give their firstborn sons to work in the temple all their life. That would be the way that they would give their sons to the Lord. But most Hebrews didn't do that. God expressly forbids child sacrifice in His Word, which is very different from the pagan nations around them. But those firstborn sons that all the Israelites had were gods. And therefore, they had to dedicate and consecrate them to the Lord. So what does God say to do? Like the donkey, for the parents to keep their firstborn sons, for the, for the parents to keep their children who were truly the Lord's, they had to redeem them. Meaning they had to buy them back at the price of a lamb who would be sacrificed in their place. Now, if you couldn't afford a lamb, if you're, you were poverty-stricken like Joseph and Mary are in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, then a less costly offering like a turtle dove or pigeons could be made, as they did with their firstborn sons, Jesus. That's why that shows up. That's why they go to the temple when he's just been born and offer these sacrifices. They're obeying Exodus 13. But if you could afford a lamb, if you could afford a more costly sacrifice, you were supposed to go and it was supposed to die in the place of the firstborn son so that you could buy back and redeem your child. God wants Israel to remember their redemption forever and ever. So He commands this practice to be followed by them forever 
and ever. God doesn't want them to harm their children. God doesn't want to literally take them away, but He wants them to always remember that all that they have is God's, even down to their family and their children. This is another example, just like the Passover, of salvation by substitution. The Son will be redeemed and bought back by what? Because a replacement will be offered as a sacrifice to God in their place. Just like in the Passover and just like believers today are redeemed by our Savior Jesus Christ. So so dedicating your firstborn son to the Lord in this way, this is saying to God, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will never forget our salvation. We will never forget that all that we have is yours. That is what that was communicating to God as the people of Israel did that practice. And yet, as new covenant believers who are saved by our repentance and faith in the finished work of Jesus, how in the world does that apply to us? We don't bring lambs and goats in at baby dedication ceremonies and say, this is really God's, but the lamb's going to die, right? We don't do that anymore. You go to a church that does that, go somewhere else. But this does still apply. The principle still applies. Because God also wants believers in the new covenant to never forget their salvation, to never forget that they have been redeemed. So what does He call us to? He doesn't call us to practice these rituals exactly like the Israelites do, but He tells us to remember our redemption, to remember our salvation by preaching the gospel to ourselves, reminding us ourselves of the gospel day after day after day. And this is why. Because every one of us, no matter your story, Every one of us is prone to find our identity in other things than God and the gospel. Every one of us. We can find our identity in our work, in our jobs. We can find it in our wealth. We can find our identity in our upbringing and the values that were instilled in us. We can find our identity in our patriotism or in our family relationships as a parent or a spouse. We can find our identity in our looks, in our health, in our reputation, in the skills that we have. We can find our identity in the hobbies or even in the sports teams that we follow. We are prone to find our identity, what is most important about us, in all sorts of horizontal things. But God has always wanted His people to never forget that our primary identity marker is not in any of those things. But if you're a believer, your primary identity marker is that you are a redeemed, blood-bought son or daughter of the King of Kings. God, who is rich in mercy, has redeemed His people by the blood of the Lamb. And that should always be our primary identity marker. And yet in day-to-day life, we all suffer from spiritual amnesia. From spiritual amnesia. Every one of us is prone to forget the most important things about ourselves in the midst of our busy lives. 
in the midst of our busy lives where we're pulled in different directions, where we feel different pressures, face different circumstances, face different temptations, God knows that we are prone to forget what is most important. He knows that we're prone to run after idols. We're prone to have doubts instead of trust His promises. We're prone to give in to temptation instead of walking by the Spirit. We're prone to forget what's most important about us and why God has put us here in the first place. And that's why when you read the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, half of its message is this. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember what God has done. Remember who you are. He says it in a million different ways. God doesn't want His people, Old Covenant or New Covenant, to ever forget who they are as His redeemed, blood-bought saints, saved by God, adopted into His family. And the way that we do that, the way that we remember that truth and remind ourselves of it and preach it to ourselves day after day is we hide God's inspired word into our hearts and we meditate on it day and night and we sing praises about it constantly and we thank God for it all the time. That's what we do. The way that we remember our redemption is to live life in a believing community where you're hearing and being encouraged in the gospel week after week after week, not just by your pastor, but by other believers who, are, who love you enough to have conversations with you that go deeper than surface level stuff. We're encouraged to do this in community. It's a community project, but it's also one we pursue individually each day. Some of you in this room know a lot about the Bible. Some of you are excellent in Sunday school or in Bible study. You, you've read, you've studied, you've been invested in, you can talk about these things. But God wants us to talk even more to ourselves about the gospel than we do to other people. He wants us to preach the gospel to ourselves day after day after day. You might not be called to stand up behind a pulpit and preach or or teach in a public setting, but you're called to be a preacher. A preacher of the gospel to yourself day after day, reminding yourselves of who you are in Christ so that when you feel alone, when your life you feel like is marked by loneliness and no one is there from you, you can remind yourself as you preach the gospel to yourself that God is always with me. He is my adopted Father. His presence dwells in me. When we find ourselves living in guilt, we repent of our sin if there is sin, and then we remind ourselves that I have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. I am guaranteed a not guilty verdict before God the Father. My penalty has been paid in full. We preach that to ourselves. We sing that. We thank God for that constantly. When we find ourselves living in shame, we remind ourselves that Jesus Christ has covered all of of our shame, and we are fully accepted by God through our Savior Jesus. When we find ourselves living in anxiety and fearing even death, we remind ourselves that death has ultimately been defeated in the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. When we fear the future, we remind ourselves that God is in control of all things and that He has a glorious inheritance that is coming our way that will never fade. 
Friends, these are the truths we must preach to ourselves day after day after day to remind ourselves of who we are. Because part of being God's people is working hard to remember your redemption. And it's only when we preach those promises to ourselves as a part of the normal warp and woof of our lives that we will experience true rest and peace. Bible study, Bible reading, Bible discussion is not primarily an academic exercise. It is meant to transform us as we preach the promises to ourselves and renew our minds so we become more like Christ and we're anchored in Him. And it is that that gives us peace even in the midst of the valley and the storm. That's the first truth we see here. When when your bondage is broken, you're called to work hard to remember your redemption. But there's, there's more that we see here. Through these different rituals that are given, we see secondly that when your bondage is broken, you're called to pass on the promises. To pass on the promises to all people, but in particular in our text, to your children. These rituals aren't only supposed to be practiced by the people of Israel, they're supposed to be talked about constantly particularly to the next generation. God wants Israel's future generation of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to know who they are as a people, to understand their spiritual condition and their need for redemption. He wants them to understand their need for a substitutionary sacrifice. He wants them to have good theology and know who God truly is and be held accountable to God's standards. He wants them to see in their family consecrated and holy lives being lived out in front of them. That's why in each of these rituals, God goes out of His way to tell Moses, to tell the people, as you do these things, don't just do them silently. Talk about them. Talk about what God has done. Parents, grandparents, those who are called to invest in the next generation, even if you're not a parent or grandparent, this speaks a strong word to us today. God cares about your parenting. You as a parent, are called to be the primary disciple-maker in your home. The Great Commission for you as a parent starts at home. It starts there. I am not called to be the primary disciple-maker of your children. Their Sunday school teachers and Awana leaders are not called to be the primary disciple-makers of your children. You are, if you are a parent, or if you're functioning as a parent in a child's life. You're called to teach them God's Word, to remind them of God's promises, and to live out before their eyes a gospel-treasuring life. That can be intimidating. And we often hear that and feel very ill-equipped. And yet this is what God has always called His people to be and to do. And as we do this, we are called to remember that you cannot produce spiritual fruit in your kid's life. You can't do that. Only God can. We can teach our kids the Bible. We can train them to be polite and respectful and have good behavior. But we can't change their hearts. 
Parenting is not a math equation where if you plug in just enough church attendance, just enough Bible study, just enough being an understanding parent, and just enough of avoiding negative influences, you can guarantee salvation and godly lives in in your children. It doesn't work like that. There are many a faithful parent who have unbelieving children. And there are many parents who have not been faithful to invest the gospel into their children, whose children know the Lord and treasure Him above all. The book of Proverbs does teach us that the way that the world usually works is that God's people who invest in their children, their children will follow in the footsteps of their parents. But that is a proverb. That's not a promise. There are far too many self-righteous parents today who think they've arrived because their kids turned out well. And there are far too many parents living in constant condemnation because their kids don't believe and they blame themselves. But friends, ultimately parenting is not about you. It's about God. And that means we're called to be faithful and to do the best that we can and to seek wisdom from others and to pray fervently and constantly for God to work in ways that we can't. And as we do these things, we have to remember that we can teach our children the Bible. You can teach your children theology. You can. You don't need a seminary degree. I promise. You need a willingness to obey God and to be intentional. That's what it takes. You you fathers in particular, you should be the primary preacher over your child. Okay? Dad's not in the picture. Mom can do that well. But fathers need to lead their families and their children spiritually. You can lead family worship. That doesn't mean you have to have an hour-long worship service and learn how to play the guitar and get a lectern built so you can preach. That's, That's not what I mean. If you can read, if you can ask questions, and if you're willing to put the time in, and maybe occasionally even sing a song, I know that's kind of uncomfortable for some, but if you're willing to do those kind of things, you can be the person who invests in your kids and who teaches them God's Word. You don't have to have all the answers. And remember that as you're called to do these things and as you attempt them and feel imperfect at them, the church is called to come alongside and partner you, partner with you. If you feel ill-equipped to do these things, if you need help or resources or ideas, get help. Talk to other parents who've been there, who are in a season of life ahead of you. Talk to church leaders. Use what the kids learn at church as springboard into spiritual conversations at home. And as you intentionally lead your kids spiritually, remember that children lack the spiritual maturity to make their own decisions about spiritual things. Do you let your kids stay home from school because they'd rather sleep in and play video games? If you answer that question, yes, you're doing it wrong. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm just trying to speak some truth. We don't do that. And yet, for some reason, we pretend that math and grammar is more important than God and eternity. Friends, you are not helping your children when you let them stay home from church. You might think you are. You might think that in letting them stay home and letting them make that choice, I'm just trying to not force them to do religion. 
as a kid who would have stayed home every time, every Sunday, to sleep in and watch TV and play video games. If, if that is what my parents did, I would not have been saved because I wouldn't have heard the gospel. I wouldn't have been familiar with the Bible. I wouldn't have done all those things. Friends, we are called as those who are investing in the next generation. Make your kids come to church. You want to call that legalism? That's fine. It's not legalism. It's what I think the Bible is teaching in its principles and practice. And as you do these things, hold your kids accountable. That's what you're called to do. But friends, model humility and repentance before your kids. You're called to be a leader. You're called to discipline your children and hold them accountable. Absolutely. But your kids will chafe against your leadership when your motto of parenting is do as I say, not as I do. Kids can spot a hypocrite from a mile away and they need to see their believing parents living out the gospel, including admitting when you're wrong, asking for forgiveness, being humble. Your children know what you treasure. They know if you read the Word. They know if you love the church. They know if you're living for God. They live with you. They know you better than anybody at church does. If you want your kids to have a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ, they need to see that passion in you. They need to hear you fathers singing in church, even if it makes you uncomfortable. My dad was never one who would sit down with us around the dinner table and read and explain the Bible. At one point, he was an Awana game leader, which was cool. But you know what I remember about my dad? He would stand there, and he could sing okay. But I remember every time that they played the old rugged cross, he would be over there weeping. I remember sitting there as a kid looking up at my dad, who I thought was the strongest dude in the world, an imperfect man, but one who loved the Lord, and watching him weep through that song. And I remember asking him as a young teenager, why do you always cry during that song, Dad? He said, because I remember when I was growing up in the Methodist church standing by my daddy who's gone now, and he always wept during that song. I remember listening to my dad sing those old hymns and thinking, you know what? I can follow the Lord because Daddy does it. I'm not trying to be legalistic. But kids need to hear their parents singing the songs of the gospel. Kids need to see their parents committed to God's Word. That doesn't mean you have to be a theologian. It just means that you're someone who recognizes your need for Him. Parents need to see your, their, or kids need to see their parents praying. Not praying rote, meaningless prayers where you say the same prayer every time that you've heard everyone else say, but praying meaningful prayers, conversations with God. They need to see you serving and being excited about church, not treating it like a begrudging duty. They need to hear you talking about who you're sharing the gospel with, leading your family on mission. Because if they see a lack of passion and love for the Lord in your day-to-day life, then they won't care what you say you love with your mouth. We are called, just as Israel was, just as God's, God's old and new covenant people always have been, to pass on the promises to the best of our ability. We'll do it imperfectly, but by grace we can be faithful. That's the second thing that we're called to do, I believe, in this passage. There's one more. 
When your bondage is broken, you rest as you dwell near the God who's always watching. Egypt's been in, Israel's been in Egypt for 430 years. God sets them free. And in chapter 12, verse 42, we read that this was a night of watching. God's all-seeing eyes will watch over Israel, not just on the night of their salvation, but all of their days, past, present, and future. I believe wholeheartedly that some of the best theology comes from songs that we teach our kids. Songs like, He's got the whole world in His hands. In a broken world that's full of heartache and trials and sin and death and despair, it's easy to think, There is no God, and if there is one, He must not be a good one. Over the course of 430 years, entire generations, how many Israelites who were living their lives in bondage do you think gave up on God? Thinking that He was far too slow to bring about His promises. How many Israelites who lived their whole life in bondage had lost all hope because their waiting for God to do what He said He was going to do seemed to never come? The answer is probably a whole lot of them. But during these trials and waiting, God heard their cries. God knew their hearts. And at the right time, God prepared the way and sent His messenger and showed His power and broke their bondage and kept His promises. And the same God who knew their trials and who proved His power in their salvation is committed to watching over them even after He saves them. In chapter 13, verse 17, we read that God draws near to them and He leads them. He knows that their faith is weak, so He leads them away from the Philistines, knowing that they will be intimidated and be prone to wander back to their bondage in Egypt. God knows His people. He knows what they can handle. And just like a father with his son who will expose him to hardship only in doses that he can handle, God watches over His people. And as He shows this care for them, He goes before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God doesn't just save His people. He leads them. God doesn't just make promises to His people. He gives them His presence that will be there with them always. Even though they can just now begin to see a visible manifestation of God's presence with them, God has always been there. Even when things were hard in Egypt. He wasn't always seen, but He was always there. He was not always acting in ways that they understood, but He was always working for their good and for His glory because He is a God who truly holds the whole world in His hands. And if the God of Exodus, who watches over and provides deliverance to His people... If He does all of that in the book of Exodus, then we as His new covenant people today can know that He will do the exact same thing for us, the church, who are saved by what Exodus has pointed forward to all along. Because Jesus Christ is the pure spotless Lamb that the Passover has always pointed to. Jesus' shed blood on Calvary that turns away God's judgment that we deserve is what 
all of these things have always pointed us to. Our faith in Jesus' finished work is what the Israelites painting the blood on the doorposts always pointed forward to. Our lives of repentance and holiness are what keeping away from the leaven of Egyptian worldliness have always pointed to. God's Spirit dwelling in us and God's presence being with us is what His presence in the wilderness and tabernacle in the Old Testament always pointed forward to. You might have noticed in Exodus 12, 46 that God tells the Israelites that when they keep the Passover ritual that none of the bones of the Passover lamb are to be broken in preparation. And thousands of years later in John 19, we read that Jesus Christ died quickly on the cross. Why? So that none of His bones would be broken. The Apostle John and all the apostles knew what Exodus ultimately pointed forward to. To a greater Exodus from a greater bondage through a greater sacrifice that paid a far greater penalty. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. He lived sinlessly in a way that we couldn't. He died sacrificially in our place. He suffered helplessly so that we don't have to. He is the ultimate firstborn son of God who represents all of God's people. And as God's firstborn son, God offers him up for what? For our redemption. Titus 2.14 says, Christ gave himself up for us to redeem us. From all wickedness. First Peter 1, 18 and 19 says that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. First Corinthians tells us that you were bought with a price. Literally, you were redeemed at a price. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb and our redeeming sacrifice. Friends, from beginning to end, the book of Exodus is not just an old story. From beginning to end, the promises, plagues, the Passover, the rituals, and God's presence in the book of Exodus were always preparation for a greater Exodus to come, to salvation through Jesus Christ. God was giving Israel and giving us categories of salvation in these stories from thousands of years ago so that when the climax of God's plan, Jesus Christ coming, happened, we would be ready. And it all happened as a part of God's sovereign plan. The God who holds the whole world in His hands. The God who is always watching and who is for us, not against us. The God in whom true rest and peace can be found. Do you know that God? Are you resting in His grace and passionate for His promises? Are you preaching the gospel to yourself and remembering His faithfulness? Are you praising His name? Is He the King and Captain of your life? Are you passing on the promises to the next generation because your bondage has been broken and you surrendered your life to Him? Do you believe that this God is always with you and for you, even when life is hard and you're in the valley or the storm? What in your life do you need to forsake to be faithful to Him? Who has God put in your path that He's calling you to share the gospel with? 
Where is it in your life that you need to step up and serve? Do you know this Lord in a saving way? Is He truly your King? My prayer for you this morning and for myself is that we will do business with God and seriously consider these questions. Will you close your eyes with me and bow your heads for just a moment? It's so easy to come to church looking for an experience, looking for a spiritual high. And yet we so rarely sit silently before the Lord and ask Him what He's calling us to do. Friends, when we consider the promises of the gospel of Jesus and all that He's done for us, if we know Christ... It should lead to repentance, to conviction, to renewal, to praise, and to worship. And my prayer this morning is that we will do business with God in a heartfelt way. That we will come to Him with brokenness and repentance and with faith. That we would surrender our lives and renew our lives to Him. That we would do far more to end a service than a, prayer of res- than a song of response but that we will commit to a life of response because of all that He's done for us. As the musicians come up and as they begin to play softly, I want to ask you where you're at to do business with the Lord, to pray with Him. Maybe this is the first time you've prayed to Him in a long time. Nobody's looking around. If you need to pray with someone, I'll be at the front. If you want to come to the altar or stay where you're at, it doesn't matter. But as they play, pray to Him this morning. Just pray. Ask Him what He's calling you to. Ask Him to work in your life and your heart and make it crystal clear what it is that He wants you to surrender and how He wants you to respond. Let's go to Him together.